Oh, really glad you're here. Um, ready to jump into this message today. Really exciting, inspiring message. Um, not because of me, but because of the story itself. And uh, I, I think the enemy is doing everything he can to keep me from preaching it today, but I'm going to. So I um, want to ask you, if you would, to pray. Um, to pray with me, and then we'll just jump right in. God, we give you thanks for the way you love us. We thank you for being right in the middle of our story. God, we, we have a tendency to believe and to live like we're in charge of our own story, that we control everything. And so we stop today to remember that you're actually in charge, that the story is actually yours to tell. And God, we choose to get on board with the message of your story, grace and peace and hope and joy. God, those of us this week who have lived far from you, we pray that you would draw us near today, that you would remind us that your mercies are new today, that grace extends to even those who would never imagine that they could be forgiven. God, we pray today that you would guide my words, that this wouldn't just be a good story, but this would be something straight from you that would change who we are and move us closer to who you want us to be in your son. Amen. Well, I'm going to jump right into this chapter of the story. If you've read this week, um, this is the story of Esther, which is hard to mess up, honestly. This is one of the best stories in all the Bible. In fact, this story is so inspiring that uh, during the Holocaust, um, the Jews who, who had had this story written, um, obviously in their Bibles, but also had it written out for them specifically, um, they were confiscated. All these materials about Esther were confiscated, and they were banned from telling the story of Esther in the concentration camps. And the reason is because this story of Esther can be so compelling and so inspiring that it will cause people to rise up and to, to take charge of their life and to make a choice. Um, and the problem with the, with the Jews when it came to the Holocaust, and if you know anything about the Holocaust, you know it was a terrible time um, where the Jews, once again, were incredibly persecuted, were thrown into gas chambers, men, women, children were starved to death, were, were created, basically were made to be slaves in a lot of areas. And they would take the story of Esther away from them. Because if you get this story internalized in your heart, and I believe it's true of you today, if you get the story of Esther into your heart, what you'll realize is that, that God is in charge of your story, but that he has given you some choices. And what happens to most of us when bad things happen in our life, when the story gets hard for most of us, we stop and we let life happen to us. We, we often choose to just let life move and we choose to sit in a pew and complain or we choose to, to, tell, to call people and say, my back hurts. That's what I've been doing this week. We let life happen to us if we're not careful. And what we see in, in the book of Esther is hope for people whose life has, has kind of given them lemons, who's, who feel like they're in the midst of absolute despair, um, in the midst of a, a situation that they can't change or can't be in charge of. Now, I, this story, um, if you haven't read this this week, even if you've, you've been pretending like you're reading, as I've been preaching, um, go back, read chapter 20 specifically um, of, of the, the book of the, we're called, that's called The Story Today. Because um, Esther, um, her life is so inspiring, and this book is, is so profound in so many ways. If you read it this week, um, you'll notice that, and maybe you didn't notice this, I'm not sure I would have noticed it had, no, had I not read about it, 
Um, but God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Isn't that weird? It's one of the only books in the Bible where you can't find God mentioned. Now, his, his spirit is there. You know that they're living with God um, and that they're, they're choosing God in everything they do, but you never hear of God mentioned in the story. And what you do here is the story of a heroine instead of a hero. The story of a woman. And at this point in history, there weren't stories of women that changed the course of history. And if you've read the Bible at all, you've probably been uncomfortable with the way that, that women have been treated. I hope you have. <laughs> Um, because up until this point in history especially, women were, if, 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 they had, if the story was being told, they were the extras. Women were thought of as extras at best. They were treated poorly, they were used and disposed of. Still happens a little bit in our, our culture. And it's still there a little bit, but at this point in history, it was just assumed. And so the fact that God chose to tell the story like this. Remember, God can choose anybody to tell any story he wants to at any time, and he does all throughout history. He chose Esther to tell this story for some very important reasons. And this was incredibly controversial, that a woman could lead like this and could make a change like this. So the story of Esther is so impactful for so many reasons. I, I want to read this the, the chapter 2, verse 5, um, and then I'm gonna, just going to tell you the story in case you didn't read it or if you read it and you missed some things. Right now, my family, um, in the evenings, we're reading The Swiss Family Robinson. Um, it's an old book, and it's, we're, we're doing that one, and then we're going to do The Boxcar Children. I'm just going to relive my childhood. Um, and uh, my kids absolutely love Swiss Family Robinson, but it's over Reese's head just a little bit. The way they, I don't know if you've read that for a while, but it's, it's written in a little bit complicated English, and so what, what we'll do is one chapter is only five or six pages, but it might take us a half hour to get through it, because every time we come to a point where Reese doesn't understand something, he stops. He won't let it go. Dad, what is this, and what is that, and what does this mean, and what does that mean? And truthfully, it's kind of hard to get through the book, but I love that heart in him. And I believe that what we do a lot when we read the Bible, even when we read Time Magazine, is that those things that we can't seem to understand, we skip over. And so I know that you've done that with, with the book of Esther because there's a lot of things that don't translate well into English. And so what I, what I intend to do today is when there's something that I struggle with, I'm going to stop and try to explain it a little bit. Um, and I've done some research this week. I think that may be the best thing I can do as a preacher um, is not come with a bunch of my own ideas, but, but be prepared to share with you things I've found out that we both struggle understanding. And so I'm going to stop at different times during the story and explain some of the things that you might have read this week. But basically, we start with the story of the remnant of Israel. Um, and I love the, the concept of the remnant. These are the people God created to live the way he wants them to live, not so that he could have people to order around, but so that, that when, when the rest of the world saw that these people live differently, they would say something's different about them. Their God is the right God. And they, God kind of chose them to be raised up in their community. It's a lot like what we believe new life is to Paragon to the hurting communities around us. We believe God has called us to live differently, not to be finger pointers, um, not to be the kind of people who are judgmental, but to live a different kind of life so that when people see it, they go, man, they must have something right. <laughs> and we go, yes, we do. It's not me, it's God. And that's what God intended for this remnant of people. And they're, they're shrinking. <laughs> this group of people is shrinking because it's hard to live this way. It's really difficult to live this way. And because the communities around them don't like the thought of, a God, of only one God. So they shrink, and they end up in this, most of them, in this place called Susa. And if you've seen that name, S-U-S-A, it's just, it's a, it's a, a city 
a village full of people who are the remnant of God. These people would have worshipped the way that they, God intended for them to do. They were, they were doing everything they could to live by the, by the Ten Commandments. The top ten is what we call them around here. The things that God says, if you, uh, if you do these things, you'll find that in your life you'll have hope and peace and joy. And your society will live the way God intended for them to live. And, and they were living by those rules. And so we find in Esther chapter 2 verse 5, Now there was a Jew who lived in the palace complex in Susa. His name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. I love that name, Mordecai. And if you re- read the story, you know he's a cool guy. If you're, if, you're, if you're having a son, Mordecai, good name. Call him Morty. I don't know. <laughs> His ancestors had been taken from Jerusalem with the exiles and carried off with King Jehokim. Now, if you've seen the story or the Bible on the History Channel, you know what happens to this king. He gets taken out into the desert, and his sons are killed in front of him. And it is a that scene in the in the show is excruciating. Almost had to fast forward that part. Um, Mordecai had reared his cousin Hadassah. Now. At this point, you're going to notice as you read the story that there are two names for lots of people. And you think, boy, that's weird. But you know what? It's not weird. In fact, in our culture, we do it too. I have a friend from high school, um, Dan, that every time I run into him, he still calls me Jack. Um, my name is John, and he, he got infatuated with, with John F. Kennedy, and he knew that people called him Jack, so he started calling me Jack. Um, and I, I forgot that. I run into him, he called me Jack. Um, my uncle... Uh, this is embarrassing, but I'm a man. I can take it. My uncle calls me Poo. Mm-hmm. Because when I was young, I liked Winnie the Pooh, and he called me Johnny Poo, and it got shorted to Poo. Um, that's why he calls me Poo. No other reason that I'm aware of. Um, I have, uh, my, my mom calls me Jonathan sometimes, and then she'll remind me. That's what re- she really named me. Um, was Jonathan, and, and my dad shorted it to John. And I have all kinds of names people call me in my life, and I'm doing it to my kids. I, I never call London London unless she's in trouble. I call her Bear. When she was real little, I called her, and it's gotten shorter. I, call, I don't know why I started calling her Bear, but I call her Bear. And when she's 18 and it's embarrassing, I'm still going to do it. It's just, that's what I do. Reese, I call Buddy, and I've always called him Buddy, and he'll probably be known as Buddy by his friends because we, my parents and everybody have started calling him Buddy. We do this. We change names of people. It's almost like we go, you know what? That, John doesn't fit you. Pooh fits you a lot better. <laughs> Thanks. And then everybody else picks up on it. This is what would have happened to Esther. Now, there are different names. There are different nationalities, different translations. But Hester's name, her given name, was Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther, since she had no father or mother. Mordecai reared her. The girl had a good figure and a beautiful face. And after her parents died, Mordecai adopted her. So these are the, the main characters in our story, Mordecai and Esther. And they're living in this town called Susa where there are very, very few Jews left who worship and serve God. Mordecai was sort of the elder of the group who led people and who continued to get people um, to follow God as they lived. And basically, Mordecai adopts Esther, and then you begin to, the story begins to unfold as you read it, and there's kind of two stories going on. Mordecai has this argument and this feud um, with a man named Haman. If you read this week, you know that there is this, Haman is, a, is thought of as this evil person who is really, he's part of the king's um, service. And when, in this point in history, the king's servants, when they would go out, um, and those who were part of the king's court would go out into the community, if you walked close to them and they made eye contact with you, you were to bow. 
You were to bow down and at least bow your head. If, if they made eye contact with you, you would stop. You were, you were supposed to bow your whole body, which I'm not even going to try right now with my back hurting. You're supposed to enti- bow your whole body. Um, I'd plan to show you the way this looks, but it, I'm not going to do that or I may not get up again. Um, but it wasn't just a bow, like a curtsy. It wasn't a bow from the waist. This was lay flat on the ground. So this was something that basically you're saying, you're better than I am, and this is a statement of worship. Okay? And so the king, if the king was ever out, you would do it immediately. If any of the, the servants from the king were ever out, any time they would make eye contact with you, you were to bow. So this man named Haman loved this. Oh, he loved it. Everywhere he went, he asked people to bow. He would look at them and they would bow. If you didn't bow, you, legally you could, you could be killed. Um, but it didn't happen very much in this culture because the king was trying to bring really goodwill into the community. They want, he wanted to be thought of as, a, as a, a really good king, sort of like the president comes through and wants a high rating, you know. He'll do whatever it takes, to, to, and that's kind of what the king's doing at this point. So he didn't want to necessarily kill people, but boy, he could make their day really bad if you didn't bow. So he, he comes to the city gates, and Mordecai is standing out there. And Morde, he looks at Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses to bow. Because there's only one being that Mordecai would lay with his face on the ground for. And that's Yahweh. That's God. And when he worships, God says, I, only, I want you to worship one being, and that's me. And so Mordecai takes that very literally. He chooses not to worship the king, even though he's been asked to. He cho- chooses not to bow toward, to the, any of the king's people. And so Mordecai stands firm. And I, I have this picture of Mordecai um, in my mind of being a stocky little guy, um, strong and stocky, and I just see him just standing with his arms crossed, staring back at this man who's used to people bowing to him. And I love that picture of Mordecai. Um, and, and so he, Mordecai immediately begins to, to hate, or uh, um, Haman begins to immediately hate Mordecai. And he keeps running into Mordecai, different places around the city, keeps running into him. And every time he'll run into him, there's Mordecai with his arms crossed, staring at him, the only one who won't bow. And he begin, it begins to really eat at Haman that this Mordecai won't bow the way he's supposed to. Oh, man, it's all good. Um, i got to quit walking. And so at the same time then, you've got this feud between a man named Haman and Mordecai. The same time you've got the king who is, when we talked about how terrible women were treated at this time, I don't even want to get into it all. It makes my stomach hurt to think about the way women were treated, especially by the king. But basically the king could do anything he wanted to with any woman in the kingdom that he would like to at any given time. That's a tough rule, isn't it? It's not even hard to understand. Just basically whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and the parents of the, of the, the girls weren't allowed to, to protest. He just did what he wanted to. And at this point, he had a queen who he treated the same way, um, who was uh, rightfully the queen on the throne, and he would just ask her to, he would just use her in any way he felt like he wanted to. He was having a party. He had this huge party, and when they throw parties, the king threw a party. It wasn't a birthday party that lasts from 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Please have your parents there at 5 to pick your kids up. It's not that. It's we party until everybody's passed out. I mean, days that they, they would have parties. And the king would bring different people in front of them. Um, and finally, the king calls for, calls for the queen. And he says, I want the queen to come, and I want her to put on a show. And you know what he means by that. She knew what he meant by that. She was a beautiful woman, and he wanted her to put on, he wanted her to put on a show for all of his party. And she wouldn't go. When the king summons you, you go no matter what. She chose not to go. 
And it made the king infuriated. It made him so mad that he decided he's going to name a new queen. Now, we don't hear exactly what happens to the old queen. We probably have an idea. Um, but basically, he decides, I'm going to go get me a new queen. One that will obey me. One that will do what I, what I tell them to do. So he sends his servants out. And remember, this is the same time we got the story going with Mordecai and Haman. And it's heating up. They get their rivals now. Now you've got the king saying, I want to send my servants out to all the areas around. And I want to find a new queen. So send them out and find all the women that you think would make a good queen. Bring them to me and put them in a concubine. Put them in a it's part of the palace um, where you can, for a long period of time, train them. Make them pretty, get, get them the right nutrition, put makeup on them, teach them all the, the cultural things. And if you can imagine this huge part of the castle, of where the king would live, the huge part of this place that was just dedicated to making woman, women ready for the king. It is gross. And as these servants went out into these communities, they didn't, they didn't go to a family and say, you know, Mordecai, we would like Esther to come and and be a part of the, king, the king's concubine. Could you please, uh, could you give us your permission for that? They didn't. They just ripped her out of the house. Mordecai had no choice. Esther was a beautiful girl, and when they went in, they saw her and thought, this girl is perfect for the king. So they brought her to the palace. And while they began to train her um, to, to, to look and to act the way the king would want her to, to train, um, she begins to win favor over everybody. The Bible says it winning, calls it winning favor. But not only was she beautiful, she was just wonderful to be around. She was, she was uh, probably funny. There's some parts that make us think that people thought that she was just fun to be around. She was a wonderful person. There was a presence about Esther that made you want to be where she was. And so she's gaining favor with all of the king's servants. And finally, in the story, she goes to the king, and basically you, you, you would spend all this time getting ready for the king, maybe as much as a year, year and a half, that you would spend training. You would learn how to walk, you'd learn how to talk. If the king had little things he liked, you would learn to do those things. All those things were being taught to her. It took her a year and a half, or some year, between a year and a year and a half, before she actually got to go in front of the king. When she got to go in front of the king, with all the rest of the girls, the king would be able to look at her and say, yes, I like her, no, I don't like her. He would be able to, to say what he wanted and do what he wanted. Then they would all retreat. And after a short period of time, they, they'd go back to their concubines. After a short period of time, the king would say, I want to bring that one girl back. What was her name? And maybe they even numbered them. There were kings that even numbered them. Please bring 33 back. It was gross. And after a short period of time, they went back and they would hope the king would call them back. Some of them were then killed if the king didn't like them. Some of them were sent into service. Some of them were sent back to the concubine to get more ready for the king for another showing. Ruth, or, I'm sorry, uh, Esther got in front of the king and the, it, basically the king liked her. He, he found favor in her. But then she retreated back the way she was supposed to. And as we go through the story, we see that um, at the same time, this Haman has this incredible hatred for Mordecai. It gets worse and worse. Every time Haman goes by Mordecai, there he is, standing with his arms crossed. I remember when I was in fifth grade, I was a puny little guy. I was a man bullying was a big deal when I was a kid, but they didn't call it that. You know, it was just you get beat up. That's what you do. Um, now I realized I was bullied. I was a scrawny little skinny dude when I was in fifth grade. And I remember, I won't say the guy's name because he's probably still around Bloomington somewhere, but I remember his name. I remember he had a nickname that scared me to death. His nickname was Brando. And he scared me to death. 
And I remember going to bed at night, and when I closed my eyes, I saw Brando. I just saw him. I knew he was going to beat me up. I knew he, and I remember the thing he would say to me every time is, Mitchell, I heard what you said about me. I wouldn't have had said anything about him. He just wanted a reason to beat me up, and he said it all the time. And What? I didn't say anything, Brando. <laughs> Man, I was a wimpy little kid. And I, I just remember that in my dreams, I remember I'd wake up and I'd see Brando. He was my arch nemesis. I saw him not that long ago. He was at a Mexican restaurant. He's bald and gained a whole bunch of weight. I, let's just say I don't see him in my dreams anymore, okay? <laughs> but this is what happened to Haman. He was going home at night. He couldn't think about anything else except for his arch nemesis, Mordecai, who stood there when everybody else bowed. So he decided he was going to create a plan that he would tell the king that Mordecai and that all of Mordecai's people were out to overthrow the king, basically. That these were people who lived differently. We know why they lived differently. They were living in accordance with God. But they lived differently. And different is dangerous. You know, the the truth is different is dangerous, even today. You know what makes me, as I was reading this, it makes me think, do you think anybody would ever say that of, of us as Christians? Those of you who've been going to the church here for a long time, those of you who have asked Christ into your heart, and you're thinking they would say, man, those people, are, they live differently. They're dangerous. They're dangerous. But usually Christians, the only danger they propose is just that they're going to say something awful on Facebook or point a finger or judge. But in terms of actually ch- making change in a community, it, there's not a lot of danger, unfortunately. At this point, Haman says, these people are dangerous, king. He goes to the king and he says, there's a group of people. He doesn't call them the Jews. He doesn't call them the Israelites because the king remembers Daniel. And you remember the story of Daniel. The king remembers Daniel and he knows who Daniel is and was. And he knows that Daniel was a really well-reverend uh, guy in the, in the community. And if he knew that it was the Israelites that, that Haman was talking about, he probably wouldn't... Oh, that He probably wouldn't... Um, probably wouldn't do anything about it. So what, basically, Haman goes to the king and he says, the Israelites, they're living differently and they're dangerous. They worship a God, they don't worship you. They won't bow to us. They wouldn't even bow to you, king. And the king gets so fired up, he says, I'll tell you what, you write up something. You do with them what you want to do. You write up something and I'll sign it. Basically, he would have had a, a, a ring that he could dip in wax and put on the paper and that would have signed it, that it's a decree for the king. So Haman wrote up a piece of paper that said, any of the Israelites, any of the Jews, they can be taken at any time. They can be killed at any time, starting on this date. And so that bulletin went out to the entire community. The king signed it. Bulletin went out. Now Haman's plan is ready. Now he can have, not only only can he have Mordecai killed, he can have all Mordecai's people killed. Perfect revenge for this man who is his arch nemesis. And as as the story goes on, we see that the bulletins get passed out, um, that, that all over the area, people start to find out that the Israelites are going to be killed. That there's, basically, this is the end of God's people. And Israel is in despair at this point. The entire community of Susa um, comes together to cry and to pray. I, I can't imagine. Can you imagine? If one day, there was a decree put out that anybody who professed Jesus, anybody who was a Christian... Anybody who had been seen at New Life Christian Church over the last month could be killed starting May 1st. be a scary thing, wouldn't it? First thing I would think of is my kids. And then I'd think of my grandmother who couldn't defend herself. This is what the Israelites were doing at this point. They were sitting in the city of Susa saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? 
in, in just a short amount of time. So at this point, Esther is getting closer and closer to the king. The king is thinking about her, but he hasn't talked to her. He hasn't summons her. He hasn't called her to come back to the court, but he keeps asking about her, and she finds out that he's asking about her, and she's gaining uh, favor with the king over and over and over during this time. She doesn't know much about the Jews and the the Israelites this time. She doesn't know that they're going to be killed, so Mordecai sends a message. Now, when you see this, you'll see that there are messengers throughout the Bible. In fact, you'll see this all through the New Testament, too, and I I just want you to think about what a terrible job this would be. Have Have you ever heard the phrase, don't kill the messenger? This is where it came from, because a messenger would ride either on a donkey, on a horse, on some kind of an animal, or sometimes would walk from city to city delivering a very small message, and often would take a really long journey to say one thing to somebody. And he'd probably say it to himself the whole time. When I have to write down a phone number and I don't have a pen, I, okay, it's 876-2444. I have to say it over and over and over again. This is what he probably did all the way to the messenger. Okay, tell her when I get there. That, and, and he didn't have it necessarily in writing. It was just his job to be the messenger. And often at this point, if the messenger would have bad news, people would kill the messenger. So the idea is, don't kill the messenger. I just have a message from you from somebody else. The messenger comes from Mordecai. Mordecai sends a message straight to Esther, and here it is. Mordecai also, he gave the, he gave the, um, the messenger a, a message for Esther and also gave him a copy of the bulletin that had been posted in Susa ordering the massacre of the Israelites so he could show it to Esther when he reported back with instructions to go to the king and intercede and plead with him for her people. Haddish came back and told Esther everything Mordecai had said. Mordecai said, basically, everybody's going to be killed. God has put Esther, he has put Esther in the palace. And Mordecai believes that this is the time for Esther to step up and to save the Israelites. So look at this. Esther talked it over with the messenger and then sent him back to Mordecai with a message. And the messenger's going, Can't, can you guys get cell phones or something? You know, this is crazy. So the little message, Mordecai says, Esther, go and save us. Go to the king on our behalf and save the Israelites. And Esther sends back this note. Esther talked it over with the messenger and then sent him back to Mordecai with this message. Everyone who works for the king here and even the people out in the provinces, everybody in this kingdom, knows that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited. You're not allowed to go into the king. You're not allowed to just poke your head in and go, hey man, you got a second? You're not allowed to even get close to the king unless he summons you or you'll be, you'll be dead immediately. The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter. If he looks at you and extends his gold scepter, then you can come and address him. Then he or she may live. And it's been 30 days now since I've been invited to come to the king. So basically she's saying, if he really liked me, he would have called for me before now. And if I just go in and talk to him, he will kill me on the spot because I don't have an invitation. So here the messenger goes back to Mordecai. And Esther has a choice. You know, I want to pause here for a second in this story because I want you to apply this to your story. The things going on in your life right now, whatever it is, the good, the bad, that you have a, a choice. You can do one or two things with your life, especially when life gets hard, especially when it seems completely impossible to move forward. You can do one or two things. That next slide. You can be an extra in your story if you want to. You know, my company, we shoot video a lot, um, and, and we, every now and then we shoot stories, and when we do, we hire extras. 
Um, and I hate the name extra. I hate the word extra. It's like you're just another person. There's, there's, the, uh, there's the hero, and then there's the main characters, and then, then there's the extras. Basically to say you get paid the least, and we could really replace you with anybody. And honestly, in my life, and what I've seen, especially as a preacher, I see a lot of people who have chosen to be an extra in their story. In the middle of their story, they've chosen to stand in the background and let life happen to them. And I've seen it over and over in my life. Ran into a guy not too, not too long ago at a restaurant, and I just saw it in his face. And I'd heard that he was going through some awful things with his marriage and with his kids. And I saw it in his face. He was looking like an extra. You know what I mean? Downcast. You can tell an extra real quickly. Because you say, how are things? And they go, oh, it's so bad. And they begin to, what we call Eeyore. Anybody know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? See, I told you I like Winnie the Pooh. Eeyore, everything's bad all the time. Never see the good side. I'll probably... I don't know. I remember this guy said, how are you doing today? Well, I, you know, my, my wife's doing this. My kids are doing this. And, and he said, I'm just going to go sit somewhere and wait for the next thing to happen. <laughs> like, what in the world kind of life is that? Truth is, though, there are people all over your life, maybe you included, that are living in their own story like an extra. Now, at this point, Esther can say he could live like that. He could just say, hey, you know, I, 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 Esther could just say, hey, you know, I, I can't do anything. I've been ripped out of my home. I've been pulled out, and I'm just, I'm along for the ride, waiting for the next bad thing to happen. Or she could say, I'm going to step up in my story. I don't want to be the extra. I want to be the hero in my story. My grandfather preached at Centerton Christian Church. You know where Centerton is off of 67? You see, if you blink, you miss it. I mean, you go off of 67, you see a little sign that says Centerton, and there's a church um, in that community that is about half the size of this room, the entire church. And he preached there for 40 years. He was a meat cutter at Kroger. And he preached the rest of his time um, at that church. And it, during his funeral, we went to his funeral, we went to the, the, the visitation. We think he's a little guy, wasn't a real loud guy. And at his visitation, I'll never forget it. I've been to lots of visitations. I've never seen a line as long as we called him Papaw. Um, we never saw a line as long as I saw at Papa's funeral. Never. People, one after another, would come up and introduce themselves to my grandmother, say, your husband was the hero in my life. When everything was going wrong, I would go to Kroger, to the meat counter, and I would ask the meat cutter to pray with me. And from behind the counter, with an apron on, my grandfather was the hero in story after story after story. I'm going to ask you right now, what would be the difference in your life if you saw your role as hero instead of an extra? This is what happens right now with Esther. She has a choice. She's right in the middle of a choice. Maybe you do today too. I'm going to finish the story. Here's what happens. Esther gets a wake-up call. The messenger comes charging back to Esther with one more message from Mordecai. When, when the messenger told Mordecai what Hester had said, Mordecai sent her this message. Check this out. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who will get out alive. If you persist in staying silent, being an extra in your story, at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else. God's going to deliver us one way or the other. 
Then he says this, but you and your family will be wiped out. And this is the phrase that maybe you've heard before from this story. And I'm hoping it inspires you today. He says this to Esther. It's a wake-up call for her. He says this, who knows? Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. Maybe this is the reason you were born. This time, right here, right now. At this, Esther makes the choice. And God uses Esther to save the Israelites. Check this out. This is the rest of the story. Esther is sent back her answer. This poor servant, or this poor messenger going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Man, if he ever saw text messages, he would just fall right over. (laughs) Esther sent um, back her answer to Mordecai. Here's Esther's answer. Go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me. Now, here's one of those things where Reese would say, Daddy, what's fast? Here's what fasting is, and maybe you've heard of fasting. In fact, if you go to the doctor and you're getting ready to have surgery, the nurse will tell you to fast for 24 hours. That means don't eat, don't drink, maybe just drink water for 24 hours. That's not the biblical fast that we're talking about. Now, in the biblical fast, what they would do is it did include not eating and not, not drinking anything but water. They would, they would completely quit eating as, as to say to God, I am serious about this. I know that you're my provider. I choose you, and I am serious about the prayers that I'm praying right now. It, basically what it does is it steps life up spiritually for you. And I don't know if you've ever done this. Um, I, still, I have family members who still do it. I've done it three times in my life. Um, the first time I did it was in Bible college because it was the cool thing to do. Um, yeah, that's how geeky Bible college was. Um, fasting was the cool thing to do. Um, but, uh, but I did. I fasted, and I fasted for, for six days. First time I'd ever fasted, and we broke the fast at Steak and Shake on the seventh day. Um, and I'd never been so sick in my life the next day. Um, but I, I didn't really know what it meant. I just didn't eat. And truthfully, that's not a fast. So I was talking to my mom about it, and during my divorce, I was going through this terrible time. I was trying to decide whether to stay at the church that I was serving during the divorce or move on. And my family decided the best thing for me to do, and and they would do it with me, is to fast and pray for three days. So I did. Um, I completely didn't eat anything. Um, I just drank water. And the idea is that every time you get hungry, every single time your your stomach goes, you go, God, uh, you're in charge. And every time I get hungry, I'm reminded that you could take my food from me anytime you want. And that you're in charge of what's going on here. And so right now, God, I'm praying that you lead me in this thing. And I'll never forget the experience I had. It was three days of really hard for a guy who's used to Big Mac every other day or so. And basically what Esther does is she says, I want everybody to step it up spiritually. I want you to, t- I want you to fast. I want you to give up food for three days so that we can tell God we're serious about this. Don't eat or drink for three days, either day or night. I and my maids will fast with you. If you will do this, I'll go to the king, even though it's forbidden. If I die, I die. Doesn't that sound like a a hero? It sounds like Bruce Willis to me. If I die, I die. Go in, guns blazing. I'm going out fighting. There's so many of you in here right now that are letting life happen to you. You're just letting life happen. And I I hope that you see in this story what God intends for you to be in your story. Guns a-blazing, headed headed forward, moving in the right direction, and being the hero. 
Mordecai left and carried out Esther's instructions. See, here's the thing with Esther. She was a story changer. She was. You have an opportunity today to, to turn your story. And, and those around you, I, I thought as I was reading this, how many people are writing this? How many people I know, how many women I know whose deadbeat husbands, boyfriends have walked away from them with a baby or two or five? Just walked away. And if I'm talking to you today, and that's been you, I want you to know you have a choice. You can let life happen to you, or you can step up and be the hero in your house. And then I thought a little bit longer, and I thought about those I know in this place who are senior citizens, who have at one point or another served like crazy and have worked really hard, but they've come to a point in their life where they go, you know what, I'm going to let life just happen now. I'll go to church, I'll do the pew thing, and I'll let life happen. But you've got a family. You've got kids somewhere. You've got grandkids somewhere who are watching, who are waiting. And you can watch them walk away from God. You can watch them tornado down into a mess. Or you can be the hero in your story and in theirs. And step up the way Esther did. Now Esther became the hero in her story because she had the guts to say it out loud. She had the guts to actually say this. Some of you in here, you'll walk out today and you'll say, yes, you'll say this in your, in your mind. Yes, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to step up. I'm going to quit let life happen to me and I'm going to step up and be the hero. Here's the problem. When you say it in your own brain, it's between you and God, you can renege the next day and nobody knows. Something happens when you say it aloud. Something happens when you say it to your family, when you say it to your husband, when you say it to your wife, when you say it to your best friend. I'm going to make a change. Something happens. She had to say it out loud, and it changed. She got serious about God and her faith with the fasting, and she got perspective on her life, enough perspective to say, if I die, I die. She knows where she's going next. And then she had a plan, and here's the way this plan worked out. It was awesome. She got that wake-up call. And it, it led her to a plan. And that plan ended up um, with her just completely gaining fa- favor with the king. She walks in. She gets all gussied up. Gets all, that's the way my dad would say it. She gets gussied up. I don't know what that means. She gets dressed up, and she goes to the king, and she decides, I'm going to just go in without an appointment, which you just don't do. And she walks close to the king. She walks right up, and this is what happens. Three days later, Esther, dressed in her royal robes, and took a position in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's throne room. The king was on his throne facing the entrance. When he noticed Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased to see her. It's good. The king extended the gold scepter and asked, What is your desire, Queen Esther? What do you want? Ask, and it's yours, even if it's half my kingdom. It's a great, incredible part of the story. Esther has won favor with the king. Now, you can see this however you want. I believe God led the king to favor Esther. I believe God was in this story from the beginning, and I believe he intended Esther to go in front. But her plan then comes in, just comes into fruition one step after another. And if you've read this, if you haven't read it, you've got to go back and read this story. It's amazing the way it all ties together. So we've left Mordecai and Haman now just uh, completely fighting against each other and this terrible feud between them. Haman is so upset now at this point that he decides to set up a stake 
um, to set a big pole just outside the, the gates of the city. And now they did this all the time for people, criminals. They would set this big pole up, and the higher the pole was, the worse the criminal was. Okay, So if it was a 12-foot pole, this is a guy who's probably a thief. If it was a 50-foot pole, it was a guy who might have tried to kill somebody in the palace. And anything, the higher it got, the worse the, the crime was. It was a big pointed stake, and they would impale the person on the stake and leave it for everybody in the city to know the king's power. So Mordecai and Haman are in this battle, and Haman goes home and he tells his wife, this Mordecai is under my skin. And finally she says, quit complaining. Go out and put a stake in the ground and impale Mordecai on that stake. So Haman does. He puts a stake in the ground 75 feet tall and is going to impale Mordecai. And so what the queen does, so all this time they get the stake going out there, Haman is ready to go find Mordecai and impale him on the stake, and the queen, sa- queen Esther says to the king, here's what I want. I want a party. I want a party with just you and Haman. And when I have that party, when we're together, I'll tell you what I want. So the king says, whatever you want. So they throw a party. They invite Haman. Haman goes back and says, well, I guess I'll have to deal with this thing with Mordecai later. I'll leave the stake there. And he goes back and he starts bragging to his wife and to his family. Well, I've been invited to the palace by the king and Esther, and I'm the only one in the whole city that's been invited. So he goes. And when he goes, one thing after another happens, and finally Esther says to the king, here's what I want. And the king looks her in the eyes and says, up to half of my kingdom, whatever you want. And she says, here's what I want. I want you to reprieve the Jews, the Israelites. I want you to to retract the statement that you made and the decree that you made. And he ends up saying, what do you mean the Jews and the Israelites? That's the people? He says, that's your people? And she says, yes. And then the king realizes that Haman's been trying to pull one over on him from the beginning. He pulls Haman in, and he says, you're going to be killed for this. I am tired of you. I can't believe what you've done. You've gone behind my back. You're going to kill an entire, nation, an entire group of people because of a vendetta of your own, and I'm going to kill you. And then he says, I love this part of the story, I just don't know how yet. I'm not sure how I'm going to kill you yet, Haman. I'll figure it out. And somebody goes, you know what, king? There's a 75-foot pole out in front of the city. That would be a good place to put him. So the pole that Haman set for Mordecai, for Esther's dad, is the pole that Haman ends up being impaled on because of his lies to the king. You thought the Bible was boring, didn't you? How cool is that? God says this evil will not stand. This evil will not stand. And Esther becomes the hero. An amazing story. I absolutely love this story for so many reasons. But today, as a band, you guys can come up. Today, I want you to do like we've done every week. And that's think of this in terms of your own story. It's a good story. It's fun to listen to. It's fun to read this story. But it doesn't mean anything if you don't apply it to your own story in your own life. First, I'd like you to know that you have a choice today. You have a choice whether to let, to let life happen to you or to go be the hero. And some of you have chosen to be the hero. And some of you have, have kind of a life where you see messes all around you and you say, boy, that's a shame. Boy, that's a shame. Now, Esther could have done that. She could have said, you know what, I won't, I, the king's probably going to save me. He likes me. 
The king will probably say to me, boy, it's a shame that the Jews are all going down. It's a shame the Israelites are all going to be killed. She doesn't. She takes it as she's going to be the hero in their stories. And I want you to know that I believe for such a time as this, 2013, that you've been put in the environment you've been. Your neighbors are, sitting, are, are next to you for such a time as this. That guy who stands out with a sign that says, we'll work for food, you go by him three, four times a week for such a time as this. If you're letting life happen to you, if you're letting the world just go by an extra in your own story, you will walk by the guy with the sign over and over and say something like, I would probably buy booze anyway. That's what we do, isn't it? If, you, if you're just an extra in the story that God's put you in, you'll look at your neighbors and you'll gossip about the drugs. You'll look at your neighbors and you'll gossip about one man after another coming in the house. If you're the hero in your story, you'll do something about it. I hope you walk out of here today with your toes sore. I hope you feel today that you're called for such a time as this. To stop watching life around you and to be the hero. Maybe it's time for a wake-up call. It's what it took for Esther. Took a note from Mordecai to Esther saying, hey, for such a time as this, you have been put in your story. I'm hoping that many of you right now that God has given you a wake-up call. And then finally, just like Esther was a part of turning her story, we know God, is, God wrote the story. He's continued to write the story. He puts the characters in. But you have a part in turning your story. If you're sitting here today and you feel like life is happening to you, I want you to know that God is intended for you to step up. And for those around you, those around you who are hurting, I want you to know we do it here at New Life. It's what we're asking God to do on a regular basis. God, use us, use New Life not to be, not to be an extra in the story, but to be a hero. We're drawing kids from all over the community and with them come parents who are hurting. Would you pray with us? And would you look like Esther did to be a hero and not an extra? You stand with us as we sing.